0: we can turn uh, to the Word of God and to the New Testament and to the letter to the Hebrews and chapter 11. We read of uh, two deaths and um, two funerals in the readings that we had at the close of Genesis. And uh, there's a reference to these deaths in the letter to the Hebrews. This, of course, is a great chapter of faith. Most of you will know that in Hebrews chapter 11. Interestingly, although Jacob and Joseph were both great men of faith, the acts of faith that are highlighted are surprising ones. So let's read in verse 21. Hebrews 11 at verse 21. (coughs) By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, that's Ephraim and Manasseh, and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. And again, verse 22. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. And this morning, verse 21, So by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, that's Ephraim and Manasseh, and he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. As I mentioned, the closing chapters of Genesis are dominated by uh, two deaths and two funerals. And of course, they are the deaths and the funerals of two men who were very, very close to each other. And they were bound together in different ways. Of course, first of all, they were bound by a family tie and a very close one at that. Jacob and Joseph, of course, were father And son. And they had both been uh, born and raised in the land of promise. You'll remember that they were cruelly separated for a good number of years because Jacob had been deceived into thinking that his son Joseph was dead. But amazingly, in God's providence, and a providence that has so much to teach us about the way God saves, anyway. Amazingly, in God's providence, they were reunited and spent a few years in Jacob's old age, uh, happily, in Egypt. But, of course, at the end of the passage, at the end of the book of Genesis, they are both dying. Hundreds of miles away from where they were born and raised. Hundreds of miles away from the land of promise. In fact, unexpectedly, in the land of Egypt. But they're bound together by a family tie as father and son. But more than that, they're bound together by their faith. And that was particularly important because for a long, long time, that faith wasn't really shared by anyone else in the family, with the exception, of course, of the mothers, Leah and Rachel, and the possible exception of Benjamin, too, who was the actual youngest of Joseph's children. But most of you will know well that uh, Joseph's brothers did not share his faith and they did not share the faith of their father. And in fact, it's not just the case that they didn't share that faith, but they were in hostility to it and in hostility to their brother as well. Now, the Lord actually amazingly used the faith of their brother in the darkness of Egypt to bring the family to a knowledge Of God. That was just the amazing way in which God worked. But the fact of the matter is that if you looked in that home for fellowship, you would find it really between Jacob and Joseph and the mothers while they lived. So they're bound together by family and by faith. And they're also, of course, bound together by a common desire in death, and that's that they would be buried in their homeland as Jacob put it, where Abraham, my grandfather, and his wife Sarah is buried my grandmother, and of course my father Isaac, and my mother Rebecca, And you'll notice that this desire that they have to be buried there, the father and the son, is a desire that's so strong that they bind their own family to it in a sacred vow. They both do that. It's not enough just to express the desire. They bind the family with a vow. Jacob says, I am to be gathered with my people. Bury me with my fathers. And when Joseph goes in to tell Pharaoh what his father has actually requested, he specifically calls it an oath. He made us swear that he would bury us in the land of Canaan. Years later, when Joseph himself has passed a 100, he verily solemnly puts his own family on oath. And mysteriously, he says, God will visit you as a people. Here, Joseph is seeing the darkness of the bondage and the slavery that's going to come. The prosperity is going to end and the darkness will come. But he says, God will visit you hundreds of years from now. And when he does visit you, he says, you must carry my bones. Carry my sarcophagus, carry my mummified body with you into the land where I was born and raised. And the scripture is very careful, just in a couple of verses on each occasion, to record that these wishes were fulfilled. We're told that uh, when Jacob died, Joseph took charge of the funeral. That's actually meant by the expression that he closed his father's eyes, he He undertook everything for him, and 40 days were spent embalming the body, as the Egyptians were so skilled in doing, and Pharaoh, astonishingly, decreed 70 days of national mourning for the death of the patriarch Joseph. I'm sure Jacob Jacob never expected such a thing in all the years he had spent in Canaan, that there would be a national mourning in Egypt in the event of his own death. Genesis records a large funeral procession with dignitaries from the royal household right into the environment of the cave of Machpelah. And we're told that the mourning there was so great amongst the Egyptians that the local Canaanites referred to the place as Abel Mitzrayim, which is the mourning, the great mourning of the Egyptians. Several years later, when Joseph, of course, dies, he gives the command that his own body be embalmed. It's embalmed, and it's kept for over 200 years. But on the night of the Exodus, which we looked at not that long ago, when over 2 million people of the Lord's people left the land of Egypt, the writer Moses himself stops to record in a couple of verses that they carried with them the sarcophagus. And we're told later in the book of Joshua around 1440 BC, that when they settled in the Promised Land, they took the bones of Joseph and buried them in the cave of Machpelah. Now what we need to know uh, really is why the request. And if at one level the request seems understandable, just to be buried where you've come from and to be buried with your people, why is it such an urgent request? Why the necessity to put the people on oath? And why does the scripture carefully record that it was fulfilled exactly as they requested it? And even more to the point, why is it recorded in the letter to the Hebrews as of being of huge significance that they both asked something in connection with their death and their burial? Why is their faith recorded when they are dying? I mean, Joseph had enough faith on display in his life to be recorded in a whole epistle, as did Jacob himself. But all that is picked up is something that they said and did at the point of dying. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying. I suppose one thing that reminds us of is that for these people, death wasn't so much something that happened to them, but something that they did. It was an active thing. Now, I don't mean that in a wrong sense and in a a sinful sense. People like to take control of their own lives. They want to take control of birth. They want to take control of death. And, of course, the whole movement for a supposed good death, a euthanasia, has to do with control, having control. Now, that's not what I mean by um, dying well or dying as something you do rather than something that happens to you. What I mean is that they viewed death as something to be prepared for and something to be ready for, something that you did spiritually, something that you did nobly, and something that you did courageously. A deathbed wasn't to be feared for these people of God, a deathbed was to be welcomed. Now for a lot of ourselves, and I've said this to you before, for a lot of ourselves if you were given a choice whether to die quickly or die slowly you would say, well I'd rather die quickly, I'd rather just be gone. Just like that. But as I said to you before, there's something maybe unspiritual and selfish in that. Uh, When we go like that, there's a lot of things we don't get done. A lot of things we don't get said. Things that we should have said. People that we should have met. uh, Testimonies that we can give to God's grace and God's kindness. And of course, these people don't get a chance to say it to us either. All these things are taken away by the lack of a deathbed. But a deathbed gives you an opportunity to witness on behalf of God. I'm thankful today, still to this day, for many people whose deathbeds I have visited. All these deathbeds full of testimonies to the grace and to the mercy of God. People who were dying, and they knew they were dying, but they were dying in faith. An act that was being accomplished in faith in God, just as they had lived their lives in faith in God. And here the writer to the Hebrews draws attention to that. There's enough in Jacob's life to celebrate in the way of faith. Enough in Joseph's life to celebrate in the way of faith. But when they are both dying, they die in faith. Well then, why do they make this request to be buried in Canaan? One level of... I suppose you could say it needs no justification. It's natural and good. It's a matter of sentiment, nostalgia, an expression of kingship, kin- kinship and identification with your people. And if you love your people, I suppose you would want to be buried with them in the land of your fathers. As the poet said, the land where you played and sang as a child. And every single culture really is full of Poems and songs that reflect that kind of desire, and not least our own. It's a land that has known plenty exiles in the past, some voluntarily, although maybe economically more or less necessary, but still voluntarily, others forced exiles. And many of you know songs and poems uh, where these exiles have hearts that are full of yearning for where they left. Uh, take the closing verses of a poem like a Nahatadak which conveys that so powerfully. He's looking back, I think it was, was from Moog or Berner or somewhere, and far, far away, after expressing the thoughts of his heart, he, he asks that when he's in the deep sleep. Of death, in the cold, deep sleep of death, that his body would be taken and lain beside the surging sound of the sea, where he had grown up and what, of course, he loved. And that kind of natural feeling is in the Bible, too. Uh, When David was returning to Jerusalem, you remember, having been a king for many years, uh, his own son Absalom organized a national rebellion against him, which was just on the verge of success. In fact, looking at it, you would have thought that it was successful. They even marched into Jerusalem. David had to flee the city. When he had to flee the city, he discovered who was really loyal to him and who wasn't. And uh, when matters turned mysteriously in God's hand and he came back in triumph into the city, he met an old man, an 80-year-old man called Barzillai the Gileadite. And Barzillai had put his head on the line for David when it would have been easier just not to, and David wasn't the kind of man who would forget that. And he said to Barzillai, to come with me, he says to Jerusalem, and I'll provide for you, essentially at the king's table for the rest of your days. But he said, I am eight years old. He says, let me go back to die in my own city near the grave of my father and of my mother. Now, you can understand that. That needs no justification. It's natural, it's good, and it's right. But the interesting thing is that the Bible is telling us that this is not the motive of Jacob, and it's not the motive of Joseph. These things may have been present, all right, and it would be lawful and right for it to be so, but it's not their motive. It is by faith that they make the request For them, there is something deeper and something more important involved. In fact, by putting it like this, by faith, Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph and he worshipped leaning on his staff. And by saying that Joseph, when he was dying, mentioned the exodus effectively to come and he gave instructions concerning his bones. That means that what they're saying and doing here as they're dying is lifted beyond nature. It's lifted beyond, out of the level of this world's thoughts and into the realm of faith. It's all to do with God, who God is, God in relation to them, God in relation to their fathers and God in relation to their children and their children's children. And that's what I want to look at with you today and tonight. I want this morning, with God's help, just to say something about Jacob's death and tonight something perhaps a little more full about Joseph's death first Jacob now if we're going to stick to a natural desire there's a sense in which you would understand it if Jacob just didn't want to go back because if you view his life in a certain way it would seem that his days in the promised land were a kind of heartbreak they were really really difficult he grew up with a mother who loved him very very much But he grew up with a father who mysteriously overlooked him and was blind, really, to his godliness, to his piety, and he had a strange fondness, Isaac did, for the older, unbelieving Esau, who was a a man of the hunt and a man of the chase and a strong man. And for some reason, Isaac gravitated towards him, to the point where in a mysterious way he was determined to to bestow the birthright on esau even though his wife rebecca had been told from childhood that the birthright was jacob's and not esau and sometimes you know it can be very difficult for you know for you if um if you're living your life like that in a godly upright way and for some reasons Uh, christians perhaps maybe even in your own family are not recognizing that and they seem to be gravitating more towards other people maybe even sometimes towards the world how difficult a thing that can be to understand when you're trying to be faithful and true to the lord of course you'll remember how jacob and rebecca tried to manipulate the situation into what it was supposed to be all right The blessing was supposed to fall on Jacob, but they manipulated the situation, and they had to pay for that, and they both did. The result, of course, was that Esau hated Jacob for the rest of his life, and Jacob, of course, had to go away in exile. For over 20 years, he wasn't in the promised land at all. He was serving a devious uncle who tricked him in many, many ways, and Jacob never saw his mother again. And even when he comes back after 20 years into the Promised Land, now having 12 of a family, or 12 sons, a daughter too, the family are at war with each other, depending on who their mothers were, and especially at war with the children of Rachel, who were Joseph and Benjamin. And of course he loses Joseph, and he loses him in very suspicious circumstances. Although he accepted the son's story that a wild beast must have been killed and that that's the reason this garment was filled with blood, there's no doubt as the days and the months and the years pass that he suspects foul play. There's something very, very strange about the total disappearance of Jacob, as far as far of Joseph as far as he can see from the face of the earth. And, and as he was there growing old in the land of Canaan, I'm sure he often said, what you've often said, maybe myself too, if God is with me, why are these things so? There are many experiences that make us ask that kind of question. Gideon asked it uh, when, uh, when Israel was under severe oppression, when, when people had, um, didn't have the freedom to make tools, and uh, they had to, to thresh their harvest in places where they wouldn't be seen or else they would starve to death. And you'll remember the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, I, I am sending you to raise you up as a deliverer for your people. And uh, one of Gideon's first response, I'm conscious he did say, yes, who am I and what is my father's house? But he also said, well, if we are your people, why are we in this situation in the first place? Why Why do we need such a deliverance? Is that why you took us to the promised land? with no liberty to make weapons or tools, with no liberty to uh, reap our own harvests and to sow. I'm sure sometimes you've fallen back on what David fell back on. What, when he, look, he looked at his family just before he died, there was a lot to distress him. As well as Absalom distressing him, obviously. There was so much else in his family to distress him too. But at the end of his days, he said, although my house be not so with God, not as it should be, not as I would desire it to be, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. You've fallen back on that. You still fall back on that. Because nothing can take that away. And you're clinging to God and you're cleaving to him a difficult life, Jacob's life. And when he went down to Egypt as an old man, something he never expected to do, and he's introduced to Pharaoh for the first time, he says to Pharaoh, well, Pharaoh asked how old he was. He must have noticed his age. And Jacob's response was that my years have been few, and they have been evil. The word actually there should, I think, have been translated difficult. As it can be translated. And elsewhere is translated difficult. And I think it should have been translated difficult there. It doesn't mean his days were evil as such. But difficult, hard days. In fact, in some ways, when you look at it. His life was easier in, in Egypt. With a converted family. Imagine that. With a converted family. And after all these years, seeing Joseph himself. So why is it that he gives this command. Take me back take me back home home well yes in one way the bible tells us that he was a stranger and a pilgrim in Canaan so was his father Isaac a stranger and a pilgrim in Canaan so was Abraham and Sarah they had left her of the Chaldees just to put themselves there because God wanted them to be there but they knew what that land meant they knew that that land flowing with milk and honey was a pledge to them of the heaven that they would inherit afterwards. It was also a pledge of a renewed heaven and earth that would flow with milk and honey when the curse was removed. And all their spiritual descendants would inherit that earth and indeed that heaven. One day they knew that. The Bible tells us that. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that, that that's how they understood this tract of land that we call the Holy Land, in those days a pledge and a promise of all that God had prepared for them in heaven and all that he would one day prepare for them on the earth, for themselves and for the millions of their children. And although Jacob is dying in Egypt, he's dying making effectively a profession of faith and a statement of identity. I've lived here, he says, the last 15 years of my life. I'm an old, old man, well over a hundred. But he says, I want you to hear what I have to say and to understand how I am dying. I'm making a confession of faith. Now, you all heard five people making a profession of faith today. And everyone who joins the church, even if they've been members for years, still have to make the same profession of faith. And Jacob is doing the same. I'm dying, he says, but first of all, I want you all to know that i believe in the world to come and i believe that the tract of land in which my grandfather and grandmother dies has died which the land in which they've died and which are now buried and my father too and his wife is a pledge of a new world this world in which we now live this which is represented by this egypt incidentally a land of darkness and confusion many gods and many lords represents a world that will one day be burnt in a great conflagration. But I believe, he says, that out of its ashes will arise a glorious new world and one that is sinless. And I wish to be buried in a land that symbolizes that. It may be despised and small by others, but its contours and its features and the place that God has given it to play in world history will tell us that it is a pledge of my world to come for all who believe and trust in me. I want to be buried in that land because I believe in the world to come. He is also saying that I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Even if my body when you embalm it, and however skilled the Egyptians were at embalming, eventually the body decays, well you can embalm it, he says, and you will. You'll be 40 days trying to preserve it, but one way or another, sometime it will be eaten of worms. And it may be consumed like my father's. Indeed, my grandfather laid my father on an altar about to put a knife into me and to offer me as a burnt offering, believing that from the ashes of that offering one day my father would rise again Well, I believe the same thing, he says. I believe that we will rise. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Egyptians mummify and they preserve, they think they preserve life like that. And my body may be mummified too, but that's not my preservation. You lay me in the ground where I am united to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm united to God under his care and keeping and one day I shall rise With my father my mother and my grandfather and my grandfather because as well as believing in the world to come and in the resurrection of the dead I believe in the communion of saints in life and in death I don't just want to be buried with my father and mother and grandfather and grandmother because I loved them and knew them it's because I will love them and I will know them I wish to rise with them Because I will rise with them. And I will rise in a non-broken fellowship. And death will never sever that again. I mean death is just just a temporary pause in it. And it's a wonderful thought that. For a believing man and a believing wife. That they shall be raised. And that they shall be forever together. And forever together in the Lord. Some people say that these ties are broken in eternity. I would rather say that they are heightened and elevated in eternity. I don't think anything good is broken. I don't think anything good is finished or forgotten. But it's all somehow built upon and improved upon. I knew my father and my mother. I knew my grandfather and my mother. And I will rise with them. And I will forever with them be with the Lord. That is his faith. And there's a strange way, you know, in which he says effectively that in spite of all the difficulty, the trial that I had in that land, it's my land. And in spite of having grief there, the Lord's people are my people and I want to be with them in death and in life. You know, it's a strange thing the way that the Lord's people see the church itself. You know, sometimes in the church you can be hurt and burnt. Sometimes you can be disappointed, disillusioned. And maybe for a time you feel almost like isolating yourself from all who profess the name of Christ because you say like David did in the psalm, in his haste he said, in my haste I said that all men liars be. But there's something about it that just doesn't allow it to lie like that. You know yourself to be part of a body. And... You feel yourself part of a body. And just like a, a dry tree seeking water, so you put out your roots and you want to find the Lord's people again. And you want to be where they are. And you want to feed with them. And you want to be with them. To have fellowship with them. To be at the Lord's table with them. There's nothing in a way that can keep you from that. You are irresistibly drawn to it. And even if you've been hurt at various times and in various places, perhaps in various churches, still at the end of your day you'll say that the Lord's people are my people. And I want to be with them in death as I was with them in life. And I want to be with them in the life to come. In that respect, you can almost see Jacob's dying wish here in pretty much the same way as Ruth professed her faith when she was leaving Moab. When she was leaving Moab, she was leaving all she ever knew. All she ever knew. And she was going into the uncertainty of Israel, just on the strength of her mother-in-law's faith, really. And that was strength. Although, Although it's worth noting here, and this is an unusual thing, and there's almost exceptions to every rule, really, that for a significant length of time, Uh, The witness of Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, can't have been all that good, or at least not what it could or should have been. It, it, It was a backslidden condition that took her to Moab, and that took her husband to Moab. I think, in fairness, most blame must attach to the husband, although the way the book of Ruth unfolds, it's quite clear that Naomi herself felt herself spiritually responsible too. There was a famine and a difficulty, certainly, in Bethlehem, but they didn't trust God's provision. I've made the point several times before that, that there are different kinds of famine. It's obvious that the famine in Bethlehem was not the the, the kind of famine from which you died. It was just a scarcity. Plenty of people stayed in Bethlehem, but they chose to leave, and they made a bad choice, not dissimilar to the choice that Lot made when he went to Sodom. But it's interesting that through the years, as she turned back to the Lord, she was making an impression on her daughter-in-law, an impression that was so strong that Ruth was willing to disassociate from her own homeland and to associate with a people that she viewed in a hostile way before. Isn't that remarkable? we know that ourselves, perhaps as Christians. You can well remember a time when you viewed Christians with a, maybe with a kind of hostility. At best, they were a strange people. That's maybe how you view them still, a strange people. Maybe there's a kind of hostility. But when the Lord draws, he draws, and he draws you to a people that perhaps you want to despise. And when her mother-in-law, at the very boundary of the promised land, when she tested her and said, go back to your house, go back to your people, What can I give you in Israel? She said, entreat me not to leave you. Don't ask me. Don't ask me to go back. She said, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. That's the faith. Of Jacob too. He is entirely disassociating from Egypt and its spiritual life. And entirely associating with the promised land. Flowing with milk and honey. But there's a little more to it than that. Dying in faith can be as hard as living in faith. Seems there's always a test associated with things. God just appoints it that way. Faith always Presents a test of one kind or another and that test for him comes in his last act on his deathbed when he has to bless the family. And it's not easy to bless the family. Of course he wants the family blessed but for one thing although he's got a lot to be thankful for and he's seen them come to know the Lord he knows that the blessing is mixed. For example he knows that Reuben and a significant number of Reuben's descendants will never live up to what they should have been. They will be inherently unstable as water, and they will never excel. You know, it's a sore thing to see the future. Um, many a time, perhaps, if you're wise, you've thanked God that He has hidden the future from you. Uh, there are, of course, the good things we'd like to know, but the pain in the future, not so. It's one of the agonies of our Lord's um, sufferings that he had to look hard at these sufferings before he tasted them. We can never forget that the bloody sweat of Gethsemane that was forced from his brow, that bloody sweat, wasn't caused by his sufferings, but by a contemplation of them. Is that not a thought? A contemplation of what had not yet begun produced a bloody sweat. Who wants to know these things? Aren't there many things already in your life for which you thanked God that you did not know they were coming your way? Well, he knew that some of the blessings pronounced were mixed. Some things were painful. It's an interesting thing that midway through the twelve blessings, he, he lifts up his head and he said, I have waited for thy salvation, O God. And then he carries on. His life was difficult. The second thing that was difficult for him was that the birthright wasn't going to Joseph, who he especially loved. It was going to Judah. Why? Because that's God's will. That was God's will. Joseph would receive an additional portion because his two sons would inherit a tribe. I'll, I'll come to that more fully tonight. But the fact is that the privilege of being the spiritual ancestor of the Messiah and being the kingly tribe of Israel would go to Judah and not to Ephraim. That was against his own inclination. I'm sure, now he remembered what it was like to be his father. You know, sometimes you think of things in your youth and you see them absolutely clearly black and white, and you say, well,. My father Isaac was wrong in his desire to bestow the special blessing on Ishmael uh, instead of on, on Esau instead of me. But but here, of course, he has to go against the grain himself. He has to bypass Joseph and to pronounce the special blessing on Judah. God has his way of just cutting across us to see if a real affection is for him and a real obedience is for him. And when it comes to blessing Judas' boys, mysteriously, he's led to cross his hands to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. And he knows when he's crossing his hands that he's also crossing Joseph's desire. I mean, Joseph had his own idea again. What the Bible tells is that he very carefully took. Um, Manasseh and put him forward to um, Jacob's left hand and he took Ephraim and put him forward to Jacob's right hand and Jacob is blind his eyes are dim he can't see but God just effectively tells him to cross his hands Joseph says no no he says that's that's not how I want it to be that's that's not how I think it should be and Jacob says let it be leave it my hands are crossed god desires me to cross them and again he's crossing his favoured son twice he has to do it in a sense on his own deathbed i'm sure that was a reminder too everything comes back to us i don't know about you but i think everything comes back to us good and bad Uh, jacob couldn't help but remember That tense situation when he was younger in his own household, when Isaac was going to bless Esau. And everything was ready. Esau had been sent out for the meal and it was all going to be done. It was going to be done with a vow and a solemn blessing and an act of worship. And Rebekah said to Jacob, hurry up, kill kill a kid, goat. And you'll remember how she put that fine skin on these cistern animals. She put the fine skin on his hands like this and on the back of his neck because Esau was so such a hairy man. And she said, go in there. And you can envisage Jacob's hesitation, his reluctance to it. She said, go in. This is right. We know it's right. God told me it was right when you were still struggling in the womb. For some reason, your father is blind to it, but let it be done because God wants it to be done. Oh yes, God did, but not like that. Not like that. And if, if, if Rebecca or Jacob were tempted later to say, well, what other option was there for us? I'm sure Jacob could now see, well, he could have made my father cross his hands, just as he's made me cross his hands over my grandchildren. Don't be in such a hurry to see God's will being done that you use wrong means to do it. It's a maxim in the world sometimes that, Um, the end justifies the means. In the Christian faith, it does not. Or as Paul puts it in the letter to the Romans, never say, let me do evil that good might come. There is no doubt it was God's will to bless Jacob. It didn't need his lying. It didn't need a goatskin on the back of his neck and a goatskin on his arms. And neither does God's will for your life, however good the thing is, ever need your lies doesn't need your deceit doesn't need your corruption it needs none of that let God do it all his way let God do it his way but he does go through with it and lastly how does he go through with it well he goes through with it by faith we're told that because he performed this blessing worshiping and leaning on the top of his staff Now, if there's a little detail that you think is unnecessary anywhere in the Bible, you would think it was that. Why tell us in a verse as profound as this that he is leaning on the top of his staff? It's a small detail, an apparently insignificant detail, unless, of course, it is a significant detail. The staff is a living reminder to Jacob in his old age of God's goodness and his mercy it's interesting that he refers to it twice himself when he left having lied effectively to get the blessing he left the home under a cloud without a penny to his name and for all the world it looked as though he was never going to inherit anything he was a nothing and a nobody you'll remember that he laid down in Bethel and God told him he was still with him Uh, but It it was going to take 21 long years before he would see that come to pass. He was leaving under a cloud, and as he reflected on it later in his life, he said, I crossed the brook, he says, with nothing but my cloak and my staff in my hand. And I returned, he says, with so much wealth and with so much blessing. His staff. When he was coming back to the Promised Land 21 years later, God met him in a wrestling match, which is a very famous wrestling match in Genesis 32. A wrestling match that Jacob was initially thought, thought he was doing well in, that he gradually realized he wasn't overcoming. And then, when the day was about to break, his mysterious assailant, who was none other than God manifest in the flesh, touched the hollow of his thigh and just put it out of his joint. And Jacob knows in an instant that the one he's been wrestling with all night could have flattened him within a second, but chose not to for his own reasons, but put forth his hand to touch him. And were told that from that day forward, Jacob was effectively crippled and leaning on the top of his staff. So the staff for him is a reminder of how God had blessed him, fed him, cared for him and nourished him in his exile. And it was also a reminder that God had in a good sense broken him spiritually. It was at Peniel that Jacob learned to stop trying to do God's will his way and to let God do God's will God's way. That is one of the greatest lessons that we can learn in the Christian life and Jacob learned it at Peniel. He learned it at Peniel. And every time he rested on his staff, he thought, My weakness, God's strength. He thought, Mysterious providence, God's purpose. He thought, What things look like, what things are actually like. This was the man, after he had lost Joseph, who said, All these things are against me. And the reality is, as you well know, that all these things were foreign. That's why he dies worshipping, leaning on the top of his staff. He dies in faith. So I'm living in Egypt, I'm dying in Egypt, but I belong to God, I belong to God's people, and I want to be buried in the promised land. So of course does his son, which we'll see tonight, but I want you to ask yourself before I close where your citizenship is today. You're living in this world. Do you belong to it? Do you belong to it? Or is your heart elsewhere? Are you going on a journey elsewhere? Is your family being gathered elsewhere and you want to go home? Do you look forward to the rest of the family coming home? Where is home? Let us pray. O Lord, we are thankful for the desires you place in the hearts of your people that lead them to a, a land they never knew, to a place of blessing, and to a heavenly home. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. Lord, we pray that we would die with this hope ourselves that we will rise and that we will rise and be caught up to meet with the Lord in the air that we shall be transformed in the twinkling of an eye our mortality swallowed up of immortality we pray that you would go with us through the remainder of the day in Christ's name amen We'll close um, our worship singing in Psalm 73. And at verse 23. (laughs) Nevertheless, Um, And that's in contrast with others who are standing in a slippery place and heading towards destruction. Nevertheless, continually, he says, O Lord, I am with thee. Thou dost me hold by my right hand and still upholdest me. Thou with thy counsel while I live wilt me conduct and guide and to thy glory afterward receive me. To abide. These are the kind of hopes that we express at the Lord's table. If we are granted to be there next Lord's Day, I'll, I'll say more about that, God willing, this evening. We'll sing 23 uh, down to 26, four stanzas, and we can stand uh, to sing them.